Genesis chapter 15. So this is our third lesson, and uh, we have the luxury, I'll put it that way, of just being able to look at one chapter today. So I want to say today at the outset, uh, one or two people spoke to me about trying to read over the material in advance, and that's a great thing. So uh, in case I would forget this at the end, we have to speed up a little bit, at least in terms of ground that we cover. We have to do that next week. So if you want to read ahead, chapter 16, we're in 15 today, chapter 16, 17, and half of 18, down through Genesis 18, 15. If you get a chance to read that this week, then you will have gone over the material and be a little bit familiar with it. Okay, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll read the scripture and then we'll get right into today's lesson. Our gracious Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Father, for the beautiful sunshine which helps to lift our spirits. And uh, even though it's chilly, we recognize, Lord, your magnificent power. The Bible asks the question, who can stand before his cold? And we understand, Lord, that each of these things not only demonstrates the great variety that we see around us, in many instances the great beauty that comes even in the midst of winter, we see that, and we thank you for our blessings, and we do thank you for the sunshine today. We thank you for each person who's gathered, uh, Lord, whether in the college class or in the Changed into His Image class there with Pastor Cameron or our class here uh, studying the life of Abraham. Lord, we, we come to you today as a needy, needy people. That's our confession. We realize our dependence upon you. We know we need to lean on you and lean heavily. And I pray, Father, that as we continue looking at the life of this great seminal patriarch, that, Lord, you would use the things that we're going to look at today, the things that you've sort of directed in for today, to be an encouragement that, Lord, these are things that are practical. These are things that sort of touch on where we find ourselves from time to time. And so I pray that you would just uh, guide and direct in my speech today. Help me, Lord, to have the liberty and freedom to say what needs to be said, but at the same time, uh, Lord, to be directed into those things that are practical, warm, helpful, and may we also go away with a, a better understanding of the text. We pray these things now in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, you can see Lesson 3, and I've entitled this The Test of Uncertainty. I just want to say to you, you're not going to see every single title if you're, if you're here for all of the lessons. I think maybe we've got Drop Ad Week behind us. But if you're here for all of the lessons, you're not going to see test in every single one, but you're going to see it in quite a few. And I mentioned to you at the outset, this is really what's going on here in our study. This is the concentration that we're, we're sort of doing with the life of Abraham because Abraham is known for faith. But as I made the point on the first lesson, faith is a beginning, yes, but it's also a life. Faith is what happens that begins the Christian experience when we trust Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, but it's a journey. It's lifelong. God doesn't expect us to live by faith on the day that we get saved and then forget about faith and live by human effort the rest of the time. And if you think about it, that's kind of what Galatianism really is. That's what Paul is dealing with in Galatians. So faith is a journey. Faith is required of us all the time. In fact, what does the author to the Hebrews say? But without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And that 
has to go through with us in our entire experience. We have to constantly believe that if we are seeking the Lord, if we are attempting to trust and obey and to understand his will, he is a rewarder of those who do this. He will answer our prayers. He will give us the wisdom that we need. He will bring us through the trials that he sees fit to bring into our lives. The first thing I want to point out to you today about Genesis 15, and I guess we need to read this, so let me stop and let me do that. I, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, so opposite each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain. Just notice this. Know for a, sure, a certainty. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant, note the word covenant, with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girishites, and the Jebusites. So we'll end our reading there. Lord, continue your blessing now. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. First thing I want to point out to you this morning is something about the timing of this particular chapter, how it's set in the record of the story. Because if you remember back to last week, we saw chapter 14 come to a conclusion with an incredible victory. I mean, there's a military victory to be sure, because here you have Ab Abram, he has no standing army. He has 318 servants trained in his own house. He has an alliance with a couple of the people of the land. So whatever they put together between what Abram's got and what they've got, and they go in hot pursuit of these four kings who come down out of the 
Mesopotamian area, let's just generalize and put it that way, and attack Sodom and a number of other targets along the way to ensure that that trade route there, the way of the kings, stays open. Well, the, the, the fat hits the fire because when they do what they do to Sodom, Lot is living there at that point. That's Abram's nephew, and so he acts, and he goes after them, and they, God gives a great victory. I think you will find, if, if you haven't noticed this, I'm going to sort of put you on the alert. I think you will find this. Watch yourself when you have the aftermath of seasons of great victory, because usually some kind of trial is going to follow. Some kind of testing is going to follow. I don't know if that's to, to keep us humble or what exactly that is, but I'm just telling you, this is something I want to draw off of this. And so, here we have chapter 14 ending, you have this tremendous victory, then you come to chapter 15 and what happens? We have what I'm calling the test of uncertainty. And Abraham is wrestling with some things, and I hope it'll be a blessing to us to see here. I give you the example, if you want to know what I'm talking about, you, you know the story in 1 Kings 18 and 19 about Elijah. So what happens in chapter 18, the, the great situation on Mount Carmel, and the challenge to the prophets of Baal, and the moment God sends that fire down and that great victory is won, and of course Israel through this is turned back in some ways to God, and I guess we really don't know how deep that revival went, but it was certainly a great victory that day, and Elijah follows through on this. He says, take care of the, take care of the prophets of Baal. And 450 of the prophets of Baal and 400 of the prophets of the groves. So you have the Baals and the Asherahs. That was the male and the female champions of this idolatrous worship in the land of Canaan that Israel had gotten sucked into at this point. And they're all at the river Kishon. They're all done in. It's a, it's a tremendous victory. And then what happens? Jezebel comes along, finds out that all of her cronies and all of the people that are sort of advancing her game plan, Elijah's had this great victory over them, and what does she say to Elijah? Now, can you imagine this? She says, God do so to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as one of them by this time tomorrow. <laughs> well, you'd think he'd be impervious to that. You'd think that after seeing fire come down from heaven, and all of that, and having this tremendous and great victory, you'd think that that wouldn't faze him at all. Yet, it, it does. I mean, he, you can think what you want about that, but I mean, he takes off. And he finally ends up down at the mountain of God, Horeb. And God, of course, speaks to him there. We can't really get into all the details. I probably said more detail-wise on that than I needed to, but uh, you get the point. And I can tell you... Um, can't tell you how this will work for you except to speak in generalities. But thinking back over life, I not only know that that's true in a general sense, but to me it was really true every Monday. <laughs> I mean, when you're in the ministry, you build, everything builds towards the, the high, so to speak, of Sunday. And you're in the situation of bringing messages. You preach in the morning, you preach in the evening. It's a big day. It's a, bit, it's a day of seeing God's blessing, it's a day of experiencing God's help, it's a day of interaction with God's people, and then Monday comes. A lot of pastors take Monday off. I never did. 
I'm not saying that that's not a good date. A lot of them seem to think it is, but it, it didn't really work out for me. And I think there were a lot of reasons for that. One of them was too many things happened on Sunday that I needed to take care of loose ends on Monday. But the other thing that was kind of good about that decision for me was that it kept me busy. I mean, I might come in there dragging at 8 o'clock on Monday morning because the day before had been such a, a day of spiritual output. But it was far better for me to find myself occupied with the things that had to be done that week and the spiritual issues and needs that, that arose from the day before. I didn't have time to sit around and think about it. Because you have these letdowns. That's kind of what's going on here. It's, it's a bit of a spiritual letdown when you build up to a, a huge high, and then all of a sudden that's over with now, and you just kind of left with thinking, okay, um, what's next? So when we look at this chapter, I call it the test of uncertainty because I think that Abram is dealing with a couple of questions here. I think that not only what God says to him in the opening statement, the fear not, fear not sort of tips us off. Why would you need to say fear not to somebody who just came back from a successful military campaign? Same reason you might need to say fear not to somebody who just had a great triumph over the prophets of Baal. It happens. Despondency and anxiety. This is not fear in the sense of fear for your life so much in Abram's case as it's just a, it's just a despondency. And how do we know this? Well, because of the questions that arise, look at this. In verse number two, we find the first one, and it's what? Just notice the word what. He says, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? So then we come to verse number eight, and the next one is how. But he said, O Lord God, how? How am I to know that I shall possess it? So here's what I'd like you to think about for a moment, because I'm really anxious that we find a way to look at this practically and in connection with our own lives. So something happens, maybe something big, big to you maybe. Something happens. I mean, it could be something like the loss of a job. Let's just use that for an example for a moment. And maybe it's unexpected, maybe you have some notice, but you have the loss of a job. What's your first question? What is God doing? What is God doing? What's your second question? How is God going to work this out? And that's, I think, what's going on here. And you could multiply this. There are all kinds of things where this happens to. It could be a medical situation you find out about. What is God doing in my life? And how is he going to work it out? It could be the loss of a loved one, particularly unexpectedly. I mean, this multiplies over and over again. And now you find Abram. When people ask questions like that, lots of times it isn't because they don't have any faith. It's just because they lack a lot of information. They, they don't really know how to chart the territory they're currently in. So let's go back to a medical situation for a moment. So suppose you go to the doctor and he doesn't like one of the numbers or something like that. So he says, well, I want to send you for further testing. So you go and you, you get the further testing. Then what are you going to do? Wait. And it might be a week. It might be two weeks. Or say, I want to send you to so-and-so. He's, he's a specialist in this area. What are you going to do? Wait. 
And all the time that you're waiting, you're asking these two questions. You're thinking about this. You're thinking about what is God doing and how is God going to work this out in my life. So I think this is what's going on. Abraham has some time on his hand. There's been some further elapse of time. No particular uh, visitations from God. But now God comes and comes in a, in a different way than what we've seen him come so far. I would point out to you that it doesn't say that the Lord appeared to Abram here. It says the word of the Lord. I think that's very important for us in verse number one to notice. After these things, the word of the Lord. And in verse number four, and behold, the word of the Lord. So I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I guess since I said that, I'm just going to point this out. What would you do in a case where one of these scenarios that I mentioned or a different one comes up in your life? What is God doing and how is God going to work this out? What would you do? I mean, if you were kind of on your game and trying to follow through spiritually, one of the key things you might do is go to your Bible. You might look for wisdom. You might look for God to point out a promise. You might pray. You might pray that God would give you something from his word that would direct you or that would encourage you. Would you, would you, is this right? You nod your head, hello? All right, yeah, that would be, but what Bible was Abraham going to go to? And this is where Jeff's question from the other week comes up. Did they have it easier or did they have it harder? And to me, this is tough. I mean, at least we have a Bible. And so I think it's very significant because it's something for us to be reminded of when you have these situations and you don't have the specifics, but you're casting about for information and you're in that period of waiting, trying to figure out what and how, you at least have the Bible, go to the Bible. And that's why I think it says the word of the Lord came. And that's why I emphasize to you in verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant. This is not a new covenant. This is elaboration on the covenant that he made before. But what's important to note here is covenant really is the key word in this chapter. It's kind of the controlling word of what God is doing because he's coming to him with some of the information now. He's going to answer these questions. He's not going to ding Abram. He's not going to rebuke him because none of this is to imply unbelief or lack of faith. It's just normal. It is the normal kind of stuff that you and I go through in these types of situations. So let's try to take this apart just a little bit more. So covenant, and then how does Abram respond to this? Well, praise the Lord. To the test of uncertainty, he, he, he really he does very well with this. God gives us an affirmation of exactly how he responded in verse number six. He believed the Lord. There it is. He responded in faith. And he counted it to him for righteousness. All right, let's plunge in since we already sort of laid a lot of groundwork from this. What could we say to sort of put this on a more realistic footing? I mean, I've said to you before, it's very easy to come along and castigate these people in the Bible without really realizing that you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, think long enough to put yourself in that person's situation. To this point, what has God told Abram? He's told him to leave her of the Chaldees and to go to a land that's unknown. It's not a lot of specifics there, right? Once he gets to the land, God says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And the most specific, and I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. 
When you have Genesis 12, 1 through 3, this is the Abrahamic covenant. It's the first time that he gives it, but it's all very general. The seeds are there, but not a lot of specific information. The most specific piece of information that we get beyond that until we get to where we are right now, which is why I'm saying covenant is the key word here, is chapter 13, verse 16, about his offspring, because he says, in your seed, all the families of the earth. So he mentions offspring. This is the most specific thing. Verse 16 of chapter 13, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be also counted. So remember you saw dust. That's one illustration he uses. I'm going to use a different illustration now, but lots of dust around, right? I mean, dust is bad news. You ever notice that? You don't have to do anything and dust comes. It's like out of nowhere. It's like spontaneous generation. I mean, and <laughs> you don't dust one time, do you? Wouldn't that be great if you could just dust one time? Dust is everywhere. So this is a pretty graphic illustration, but you know, that's all the information he's got. Sympathize a little bit is what I'm trying to say. He doesn't know a lot. So for him to be asking some of these questions is quite natural. And so the first question he braces God with when God says, I can see this coming across to Abram, and I don't mean to speak irreverently, but I can see this coming across as maybe just a little hollow or definitely provoking questions when God says to him, you don't need to fear, you don't need to be anxious. I am your shield. Well, he just came back from a victory with those people, so what did he need a shield for? I am your shield, and as the King James says, you're exceeding great reward, or I will reward you greatly. What, what kind of reward? I mean, Abram has just been offered by the king of Sodom all these riches which he's turned down, and which he really doesn't need in point of fact. He's rich. We've already been told that. He's very rich. Well, what kind of reward is God talking about? The thing that's really pressing on his mind is, I don't have any son. You keep talking about offspring, I don't have any. In fact, I not only don't have any, but I got this dude, Eliezer of Damascus. That's all I've got. And as I, I point out here, um, you do have the elapse of time here. The ESV sort of tries to bring this out a little bit by translating, I continue childless. So time goes by not seeing God do anything. That's hard. It's hard when you get put on hold and you're not necessarily seeing a lot of activity on God's part, but you've got these anxieties and questions. And it certainly would be disappointing if Eliezer, I mean, you know how that would make you feel. I'm sure Eliezer was a good guy. Maybe he's the same guy that we read about in Genesis 24. We're not told. He might be a really good guy, but it's a different, not the same thing. So there's no rebuke from God. It's an honest struggle. And I give you the example here, and in the interest of time, I guess I'm not. I, I was thinking of turning to this, but... We've just come into the Christmas story. I do have the verses here. And, and you know the difference. When the angel of the Lord comes to Zechariah, that's John the Baptist's father, right? And when he comes, how shall I know this is his response? He says, your prayer's been answered. If you go back and you look at that, at that context, yes, they're old. They're beyond the time of having children. Same thing as what we've got in our text here. God waits until it's physically impossible. Because God specializes in things thought impossible. So you've got any rivers you think are uncrossable? 
God specializes in things thought impossible. He does the things no one else can do. So don't be surprised when sometimes God sets you up this way because he wants to demonstrate who's really in control and who really gets the glory. And it's not our self-effort. We're going to really get into that next week when a little self-effort by the name of Ishmael enters in. But Zechariah, he responds. Now look, he said, your prayer's been answered. So obviously they've been praying about this for a long time. What more does he need to say? And sometimes you just have to let the context give you a little more insight into this. Why does God come to him? Why does the angel say to him, he asks this question, how shall I know this? So it's like, it's like what's really going on here is he's challenging God. This is not possible. And he kind of gets a little bit of God's chastening hand put upon him, right? Because then he can't talk until... John is born. Mary, who does, whose question is really not formulated a whole lot differently, when the same angel appears to her and says, you're going to have a child, well, she's engaged, to use our terminology, but not married. So her question doesn't spring from unbelief or as a challenge. She's completely submissive to what God wants. She just asks the natural question, how, how is this going to be? I, I don't have a man. I mean, not a man in her, you know, in the, sense, in the sense of normal human relations. It's not time for that yet. So she's asking, how shall it be? She's just asking for information she needs. It's sort of like when the angel comes to Samson's parents. She's trying to think if the, her name is given. But his name was Manoah, right? Can't think of her name if it was given. But their question is not to, to say... She was barren too. But they don't question God, they just say, how are we to order the child? That's sort of what you have going on here. So it, you get from the context, especially when you have this momentous statement made in, in verse number six. How does Abram respond? The questions don't imply a lack of faith. The questions simply imply that he wants information. He wants to believe God. He does believe God but he's having trouble making sense of it. It's the natural struggle. So God adds information, and he says, no, it is an Eliezer. Well, if you stop to think about it, it's the first time that's been specifically ruled out. That's more information. That's more specificity. He says, no. And then he says this, verse number four, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son. All right, now, that sets us up for chapter 16 because you can still have son by other means than Sarah. So I'm just sort of baiting the trap <laughs> for, for next time. One by one, God keeps knocking these dominoes down. All these human ideas until finally he gets them, them to the place where it's totally beyond the pale. Because Sarah's womb is dead and Abram's dead in the terms of having children. Now it's physically impossible. When we finally get to chapter 17, it's totally off the board. That's when God's ready to work. Wow. I can talk about this stuff, but it scares me. It's not easy, folks. This is not easy, being shut up to this. Being shut up to faith is tough, especially when we want to do something, we want to see something, and we'll talk about restlessness next week, Lord willing. So God clarifies, he says, no, 
It isn't going to be Eliezer. It's going to be your son. And if you want some more information, if dust wasn't a good enough illustration, come out here and let's look at the stars together. <laughs> there are going to be three illustrations. Dust, stars, and in chapter 22, verse 17, sand. And you can't number any of them. I mean, these are graphic illustrations. Think what that would have meant to Abram. What would it have meant to you? He's childless, and yet he's told, you're going to have so many offspring, nobody can even. Now, as I say, how did Paul respond? Or, yeah, how did Abram respond? In faith, and this text is given to us here, and I'll say something again about this here, but I don't want to take a lot of time. I told you before in the first lesson, we get into these questions about, well, when was Abram saved? When was Jacob saved? And all this. And we're used to this kind of question because in the New Testament, that tends to be how we think all the time. You know, when, when was someone saved? And what's your salvation testimony and all that? And you don't always find that, that degree of detail in the Old Testament. And I don't think this verse is given to us at this point. Even though it's Paul's grand text to talk about justification by faith. I don't think it's given to us at this point to try to pinpoint right now is when Abram was saved. I don't know either. Okay, so I'm just going to tell you right now. Nobody sent me a telegram either. I'm just telling you that I don't think that's what's going on here. You can search and pray and see what you come up with. I don't think that's what's going on. I think he had that faith when he left Ur of the Chaldees. Same kind of faith. I think it's given to us here more so to indicate, you know, this was how he lived the life. Once he decided he was going to trust God, when God came to him with these challenges to his life and to his faith, this is how he responded. And I think if you were to go over to, um, you know, if you were to look, I think I have these verses. All right, let's have a look here. Actually, I, I did better than I thought. So look at... Romans 4, 3, first of all. What does the scripture say? Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So that's the early part of the chapter when he's pointing out, ah, it wasn't by works. So it's Paul's great text about how are we saved. Justification comes through faith. Going to skip the other verses for a moment, but we're coming back. Here's the other place, Galatians 3, 6. He quotes this twice, using it as a grand text a proof text of justification by faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But, look at this. I've got to go back. If we go down later in Romans 4, as the argument continues to play out and he continues to develop this idea that, you know what, faith is a beginning and a life. Romans 4.3 is talking about the beginning. This is talking about the life. Look at this. Because when did this happen? He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. I'll give you a clue. This is Genesis 17. This is where we're going next week. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. I mean, they were both past any ability to have children. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. 
but he grew strong in his faith, grew, <coughs> he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And wow, look what it says next. That is why his faith was, and he quotes this phrase again, counted to him as righteousness. So God puts it in Genesis 15 when he responds to his revelation there. He puts it in chapter 17. Not, it's not written there, but it is in the New Testament. Paul comes and makes a comment on it. He says it applies there too. So I think if you look at this, all things considered, I think it's simply meant to underscore this was his response. And it should be ours, but as I've told you before, it's easy preaching and hard living. Look at the second question. How? What is God doing in my life, and how is he going to work this out? So as God continues to give more information about the covenant, here's what he says. Verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess. And Abraham is right back on him. But he said, O oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How are you going to accomplish this? He, after all, he was a stranger. What does that mean? It means he was a sojourner. You want to have some idea of what this means? By the way, God acknowledges this in chapter 17, verse 18. Let's, let's just read that verse so we have, this is, this is God acknowledging this, but right here in this chapter, all right, look at this. Chapter 17, is it 8? Uh, yes. And I will give to you, uh, I will give to you and to your offspring after you, uh, after you, the land of your sojournings, or as the King James translates, the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So at the end of this chapter, well, let's go back and look at one thing sooner. If you don't mind turning a page, look at chapter 13, verse 7. After this deal with Lot, God says to him, this is kind of an interesting thing, Oh, now this is not what I want, but this is okay. We'll look at this. Chapter 13, verse 7. Uh, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herd, herdsmen of Lot's livestock at that time. So why is this statement given to us? At that type time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. If you look at verse 17, which apparently I didn't include, look at this. He, all right. God says, arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it you. All right, so God says, go ahead and check this place out. If you were to do that, which he did, if you were to do that, what would you see? He tells us at the end of chapter 15 where we are. When he elaborates further on the covenant, he says, to your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt, which I would take, as I think most Bible scholars would, not, I'm not a Bible scholar, but I'd just, most Bible scholars would do that. Um, from the river of Egypt, which is probably not the Nile, but probably the Wadi El Arish, which is on the north uh, eastern frontier of Egypt, to the river Euphrates, what would you see? If you, if you walked through all that land, what would you see? You'd see the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. How's that going to happen? Did you notice I just asked the, word, or asked the question, how? Same one he just asked. Think about this. He's a nomad. 
He's one person. He's, now he's rich. He's got 318 servants. But you know, going up against all this crowd that were living in the land and firmly entrenched in the land, and God says, I'm going to give it to you. And <laughs> it's kind of a natural question. As long as God's in the business of giving him more information, he's got another question, just like us. And so how does God take care of this? And so God gives a rather strange way of, at least to us, it seems strange. God gives a, a bit of a strange way of answering his question, but it was graphic to Abram. And that's the point that I got to get across. This custom is very strange to us, but it was graphic to Abram. Abram would have understood it. So what does he say? I want you to go get a three-year-old heifer. I want you to go get a three-year-old goat and a three-year-old uh, and, and, and a ram. So three typical herd animals, and then a turtle dove and a pigeon, young pigeon. Divide the animals in half. He didn't divide the birds. And then as we know, what he did was, if, if we kind of think about it this way, he put half the carcass over here, half the carcass over here. So now I've got room to walk down between them. Two people can walk between them. And thank the Lord for Genesis 34, or Jeremiah 34, 18, because we don't have to kind of depend on archaeology or anything else. The Bible itself gives us some information on this. Here was what the custom was. When you made a covenant like this, you would have the two parties who made the covenant would walk between the halves. And to them, what was being said was, may the fate of these animals who were cut in half, may that fate fall upon each of us if either of us fails to comply with what we've agreed to here today. All right, so the ancient custom was to ratify a covenant by walking between the divided animals, thus summoning a similar fate on themselves if e either party were unfaithful. And then God gives him more information. And this is just a little, little digression, but very helpful, I think, to Abram and to us. So he says to him in verse 13, Know for certain. So there are some certainties in the midst of uncertainty. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. But he's not talking about Canaan. He's talking about Egypt. And they will be afflicted 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, now watch, because this is the first time he's been told this. He finds out he's, it's not going to happen in his lifetime. He's not going to live to be over 400 years old. He says this, As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. But you can rest assured in this. They, that is your people, shall come back in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Folks, what can we get from this? Well, we can get from this, you know what, the way forward with God, the way forward in the journey of faith, it's often not just simple. I mean, it's, it's filled with trials many times. He says, know for a certainty that your seed is going to be afflicted. They are going to go down into Egypt and they're going to be mistreated. So the way forward, it's marked by delay, 
I hate delay. I mean, because to me, you might as well spell delay not with five letters, but with four, W-A-I-T. And that's hard. That's one of the hardest things we have to do in, in the walk of faith. It's this whole thing we're setting up here of during this period of uncertainty, he's got these natural questions that nag on him. What is God doing in my life, and how is God going to work it out? And when God gives him more information, he says, here's what you can know. I'll give you some details. You're not going to see the land inherit in your lifetime. Your seed will, but the way forward for them is going to be marked with trial and difficulty and delay. But folks, here's the devotional point to take away from this. It's worth noting that usually when, well, always, when God is doing something like this, he's not arbitrary. If he brings an affliction, he has a reason. If he calls upon us to wait, it's because he's got something he's doing. He has good reasons, and usually those reasons, because we tend to be very restricted in our outlook on our Christian experience. It's just me. But you know, God's got a whole world and a whole program of redemption he's managing. And a lot of times, God's purposes are bigger. So what am I saying? There's two things going on here. You'll notice in the end of verse 14, he says, when they come out, they're coming out with great possessions. They won't grow into a nation in the land of Canaan, where they've got this constant harassment with all of these people. They won't, they're nomadic. I'm sending them down to Egypt, and I'm going to build an incredible nation in that in that atmosphere. And that's exactly what happened. And when they came out, you remember they were instructed to borrow. I love that term. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So they not only came out 600 footmen strong, which got to translate into well over a million and a half people, maybe more towards three million, and what are they here? Abram, Sarah, and 318 servants. That's what they come out. And they not only come out with one of them being rich, they all are laden with all of these things that they are going to need in the land of Canaan. So God has that purpose. But then the other thing that God is doing is in verse 16. This is where it gets bigger than us. That God's at work on more fronts than just in our life with the things that we can only see as pertaining to us. And what is that? Well, he says, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. I don't, want to have you, I don't want to bring about a situation where this warfare, you're incapable of it anyway, even though you just had this great victory. I mean, God could have delivered all those people into his hands, but God was redemptively allowing 400 more years. Because God is not slack concerning his promises, some men count slackness, but his long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come or have an opportunity to repent. So he's giving 400 more years of grace to people who were already idolaters. This may help to explain, and I had a couple of questions about this last week. What was Melchizedek doing there? This mysterious person who comes from nowhere and we're told nothing else about him, and yet he was the priest of the Most High God. What is he doing there? He has nothing to do with Israel as such. He's outside of it. But folks, God is at work at more places than just inside these four doors. So 
let's just see that as we go, and then we got to finish. The fire and smoke, I think they tend to speak of God's holiness. And here's the point that we'll, we'll sort of end with. When everything happens, the two parties don't walk down between the pieces. Only God. What's the message there? This is all of grace. This is unilateral. When God came to Abram and Ur of the Chaldees, it was unilateral. Out of nowhere, God sovereignly came to him, rescued him from idolatry, redeemed him, called him to be his child. And in this particular covenant, the fulfillment of it doesn't rest on two parties, it rests on one. An author of the Hebrews picks up on this. He says, God could swear by no better, so by no greater, so he swore by himself. And to put an end to it, because this is the way it is with people, he also took an oath. So it's like, now this is a really imperfect illustration, but it's sort of like you need money and you want to borrow it, and it's a two-pronged agreement. This guy gives you the money, you promise to give it back when you can. This isn't what's going on here. This is the person coming up to you and saying, I see you have a need. Here's the money you need right here. And you don't have to pay it back. This is all on me. This is all on God. So what's going on here is Abram is like the guy in Mark chapter 9. I believe, Lord, help thou mine unbelief. And God is responding to him exactly like it says in Psalm 103. And he's long-suffering to us, word. He remembers our frame. He knows that we're dust. As a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he remembereth our frame. He knoweth that we are dust. He knows, beloved, that we, re- we wrestle with these anxieties. He knows we have these questions. But he also sees the underlying desire to trust him. And so he comes to us in our need. Lord, would you bless us now as we ready ourselves for the next service and thank you for the folk that were here today. I just pray, Father, you'd suit a blessing for each of us in Jesus' name. Amen.